0: In the days before Adrian and her two daughters, Anastasia Marie joined Lafayette during his captivity at Olmutz, she had been working covertly with future United States President James Monroe. Monroe, at the time, was serving as the ambassador to France in the United Kingdom. When Adrian had been imprisoned during the Reign of Terror, Monroe's wife had frequently visited her. But... Adrienne knew the only son of one of the most hated men in France, or at least on the part of those in power, would be harmed. She knew all too well the cost of the Reign of Terror. Many members of her immediate family had been sent to the guillotine and buried in a mass grave. And so it was Monroe who helped secure a U.S. passport for George Washington de Lafayette, under the name Georges Mottier she chose to keep the aristocratic family name off of her son's documents but in a letter she wrote to washington in french she signed her own noble name noelle lafayette lafayette joked that she knew her maiden and married names meant certain death but adrian refused to back down in the u.s george washington did take the young man under his wing but was nervous and worried about the perceived betrayal to the new French government, or really lack thereof. Washington sent his namesake and godson to live briefly with Lafayette's friend, Alexander Hamilton. Eventually, he would end up in a home owned by Washington where he would finish his studies at Harvard. Monroe had had many successes in freeing imprisoned Americans in France, and after much research, he learned that Hartford, Connecticut, had named the Lafayette family as American citizens. As it turned out, he was able to get her an American passport, under the name of Mrs. Montier. Monroe was going to be able to get all of them out, save of course for Lafayette, who remained in prison in Olmutz, but Adrienne stunned them all when she refused. No, I too am going to Olmans, she replied. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette, Episode 4. George Washington had remained pained about the cost of neutrality in France, so he handled George Washington de Lafayette, or George Motier, as he was now known, delicately. He worked alongside Massachusetts senators, telling them it was a matter of safety to keep Motier's identity secret. But Washington assured all that he would pay any and all expenses related to the young man's housing and education. For prudential motives, as they may be related to himself, his mother, and friends whom he has left behind, and to my official character It would be best not to make these sentiments public, Washington wrote. Washington was also becoming more aware from intelligence how terrible the conditions at Olmutz really were. He learned of Angelica Schuyler Church's attempt to break Lafayette out, and of the torture that some prisoners were receiving. And it must have been hell to know Lafayette was there, but... Washington had decided long ago that his allegiance was to the newly founded United States, and he knew to get involved with France's political situation could prove to be their undoing. But if there was one aristocrat who could fight back, it was Adrian. The situation was dire, and yet Lafayette found the whole of her strong-headedness slightly amusing. Before heading to Olmütz, she had attempted to get back the belongings of her family's estates. She had become something of a legal expert, and now she was writing to protest the conditions of Olmütz, even writing to the Austrian Emperor, signing every letter with her aristocratic signature. But despite the fight in her, Adrian was becoming ill in prison. Her hair was going grey. She was becoming unable to walk or move her arms without difficulty. In the meantime, word of Adrian's devotion to her husband, and her refusal to leave him, even as she was withering away, inspired a movement. Washington, now in the second term of his presidency, began writing letters. Even British citizens who had fought against Lafayette seemed to be in support of releasing the man, but nothing seemed to work. That is until Napoleon Bonaparte finally decided to step in. Now, at this point in Napoleon's life, he was just beginning to rise in his power as the commander-in-chief of France's powerhouse of an army. In 1797, the Directory had asked Bonaparte to intervene. Now, if you're finding yourself confused about France's government in this time period, here's what you need to know. They went from monarchy to the Committee for Public Safety, to the Directory, and then eventually the Consul. The government went so far in a circle that they basically came back around to a complete ruler in the form of an emperor, but that's another podcast for another day. France had finally gained the upper hand with Austria, and the first thing Napoleon did during peace talks was demand the freedom of Lafayette and his family. And before you celebrate that, let me be clear. Napoleon was not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. In truth, he feared Lafayette's popularity. But for whatever it was worth, it did work. When Lafayette was approached by an Austrian official who told him that he and his family were to be freed, so long as they promised never to return to the country, Lafayette is said to have burst out laughing. I have no wish ever again to set foot in this country, he said allegedly. But then a new problem arose. Lafayette had run from France, an emigre, and though Napoleon had managed to free the Marquis, he also had some stipulations. Lafayette was no longer allowed to return to France, either. Napoleon was too afraid that those who were loyal to Lafayette, or the Lafayettists, as they were known, were a danger to his ambition and now the hero of two worlds, found himself without a country. Prison had aged and weakened both Adrian and Lafayette. The family was exiled to the American embassy in Hamburg, where they were treated the best they had been in years. And it was there that they were paid a visit by one of France's most famous diplomats, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand. Talleyrand was there to make a deal. If Lafayette would swear allegiance to the new government, he could return to France. Of course, Lafayette refused. Nevertheless, he wrote a letter thanking General Bonaparte for saving him, an act I'm sure that stung. Talleyrand then ordered the remaining lands of Lafayette's family to be sold, leaving them with nothing and nowhere to go. But in the midst of all this drama, there was one moment of joy. Lafayette's son returned. It had been six years, and the reunion was joyous. Meanwhile, Lafayetteists attempt to make arrangements for an audience with Napoleon, bringing with them young George. But instead, they found only Napoleon's wife, Josephine. Josephine was warm and welcoming and assured the 19-year-old that she would attempt to reach some sort of resolution, but Napoleon was currently leading his troops, and an answer or response would take some time. Even Lafayette's friend Hamilton skirted the issue of Lafayette being trapped between countries, but the most painful blow came from George Washington. Washington explained to Lafayette that it appeared that France had no interest in maintaining peace with the United States. The timing for bringing the Lafayettes to the United States was not ideal. Diplomacy was more important. At this current moment in time, Washington said, It would be less than honest and altogether contrary to the friendship that I have for you to say that I want you to arrive before then, Washington wrote. He ended the letter with warm wishes and expressed hopes that he would eventually be able to bring Lafayette back to America, or at least to France. But it was a knife in his heart. And now Lafayette knew His only hope was Napoleon Bonaparte. As Lafayette nursed his broken heart, Adrienne immediately took over as the initiator. She became adept at law and began tirelessly working once more to reacquire family property in France and to have her husband's name removed from the list of emigres who had fled the country. Around this same time, Bonaparte was returning to France following another successful military campaign with objects looted from Egypt that you can still find spread out in Paris. And during his return, Adrian walked straight up to the man himself and thanked him with flattery. He had saved their lives and she thanked him. Bonaparte appeared moved by the interaction and it was then that she immediately returned home to write to Lafayette instructing him to compose a letter to Bonaparte with step-by-step instructions on exactly what to say. Lafayette was not a fan of Bonaparte but he did as he was told adding in a letter to his wife that he made the letter as short and sweet as he possibly could. On November 9th Bonaparte named himself as First Consul. Basically, a Roman-style dictator. And Adrian took the overtly flattering letter from her husband to Bonaparte. As the government was still reeling from the new system, she immediately turned around and got him a passport. She instructed him to make haste to France before Talleyrand or Bonaparte had a chance to, well, notice. If Washington wasn't going to help... Adrian was going to make it work one way or another. Of course, the truth came out, and Bonaparte and Talleyrand became enraged. But Adrian had learned much about politicians, and she recognized that the only thing that really mattered to Napoleon Bonaparte was power and perception. And thus, she said that this release of Lafayette would give Napoleon the title of the man who liberated the prisoners of Olmets to start a new France. The ruse caused Napoleon to pay Adrian a compliment, but he also lamented over the potential embarrassment, especially if an uprising occurred to install Lafayette in some official capacity. The tête-à-tête ended when he told Adrian that Lafayette could return with his blessing. But he was never to set a foot in the political realm of France. If those directives were followed, he would eventually restore Lafayette's citizenship. Adrian promised that Lafayette would remain quiet and spend his later years as a farmer. The men may have been at the front of the revolution, but Adrian was the one making the moves in the back. Back in France, Lafayette was basically exiled to La Grange, and it was there that he learned horrible news. In December of 1799, George Washington, the only father he had ever known, had died. Lafayette was heartbroken and inconsolable. Napoleon Bonaparte held a memorial in honor of Washington, but not once did he mention Lafayette. Truly, Bonaparte erased Lafayette from the story entirely. Thanks in part to Lafayette staying out of view during this very public memorial. Bonaparte eventually removed Lafayette's name from the list of emigres. And then Bonaparte decided it was time to meet the man who threatened him most. Perhaps, he thought, he could be of some use to the consul. The two had been around each other some years before, but it was now time for a long evening of dialogue. In October of 1800, at a celebration for the signing of the Treaty of Montfontaine between the United States and France, Lafayette and Bonaparte finally had a conversation at the home of Napoleon's brother, Joseph. Face to face, there was a cold awkwardness. Napoleon and Lafayette knew that they had very different views on government. It didn't stop Lafayette for asking for more of his colleagues to be allowed back into France, and despite their differing viewpoints, Napoleon offered Lafayette the opportunity to join the Senate or become ambassador to the United States. Lafayette turned down both. "'I am too American to go to America as a foreigner,' Lafayette explained famously." Napoleon was concerned that Lafayette thought him a despot, and, well, his instinct was spot on, but Lafayette had long learned the delicacy of this situation and knew his only protection was in his silence. And just as George Washington longed to farm and sit under the shades of his trees in his twilight years, Lafayette decided to do the same. And he excelled at agriculture. He modeled his chateau at La Grange after Mount Vernon agriculture turned out to be something of a distraction from the political landscape that he was watching unfold. Napoleon was going to become something of a monarch himself, and in 1802, millions of Frenchmen voted to name Napoleon Consul for Life, effectively an emperor under a slightly different name. And of those millions of votes, the majority in favor of Bonaparte's ascension to power, there was one that stood out. Lafayette had voted against Napoleon. A strong but dangerous no. Despite remaining out of the public eye, he was still standing in his principles. Adrian, in the meantime, had managed to slowly collect some of their property and money back. Their lives had returned to something somewhat normal, but a surprise visit from James Monroe caught the Lafayette family off guard when they learned that Napoleon had reached out to make a deal with Thomas Jefferson, the current President of the United States, it was overwhelming because Jefferson and Napoleon had been in a standoff over the Louisiana territory for a very, very long time. But in a move that shocked most, Napoleon offered to sell the land to Jefferson for an incredibly cheap price. The Western world was providing many an issue for Napoleon, and the money, he figured, could be used to fund his European conquest, but rest assured, Napoleon will get his own series on this podcast as he happens to be a personal favorite of yours truly. Jefferson offered Lafayette land in the States, but as his family expanded to include grandchildren, he told Jefferson that he intended to stay he turned down more offers from Bonaparte, including the Legion of Honor, pointing out that he was keeping his end of the bargain by staying out of politics and staying retired. This rejection did not go over well. George Washington de Lafayette had joined the army, and Napoleon took his anger out on his enemy's son. Every promotion was blocked even after George was injured, saving Bonaparte's life. The pettiness ran that deep. Adrienne and Lafayette now frequently fought, disagreeing with almost every decision her husband made, but Lafayette was aging and had suffered a leg injury that, even though it had healed, often remained very painful. He wanted to live in peace, but it was proving more and more difficult. In 1804, the Haitians overthrew the French during their own revolution, marking the world's most successful slave rebellion. And despite the loss, Napoleon decided to focus his full attention on his power in Europe, crowning himself, quite literally, Emperor He put the crown on his own head. Sometime later, Lafayette received more horrible news, no doubt some months after the fact. His beloved friend of nearly 30 years, Alexander Hamilton, had been shot, killed by Vice President Aaron Burr in a duel in New Jersey. It was no doubt heartbreaking, but Lafayette reached out to Thomas Jefferson, Despite the constant feuding and bickering between Hamilton and Jefferson, he was certain the death hurt Jefferson as well. As author Mike Duncan writes in his book, Hero of Two Worlds, most of Lafayette's friends were now buried in the ground. He was getting older by 1807 Lafayette's son and son-in-laws returned to La Grange having resigned their commissions in the army. Adrian was so overjoyed to have her entire family home. She had a home full of grandchildren. And then in late August she began developing pain mostly in her stomach. She could not keep down food or water. The family took her to Paris for immediate care, and Lafayette refused to leave her side. She often spoke to Lafayette in delirium, making no sense, but he played along and conversed with her. Just after midnight, on Christmas Eve, 1807, Adrienne opened her eyes and looked lovingly at her family. I am not suffering, she whispered to comfort them. But her last act was one of love. She turned to her husband, Lafayette, the man she had adored her entire life from the time she was a young bride until now on her deathbed. She stared at him with love in her eyes, smiled bravely and whispered, Je suis tout à vous. I am eternally yours. She then closed her eyes for the last time. She was only 48 years old. Adrian's death nearly destroyed Lafayette. Yet another loss in his life. Writing to a friend who had been a fellow prisoner in Olmutz, Lafayette said, You have always seen me able to overcome circumstances. Today, circumstance is stronger than I. After her death, he left her chamber untouched and would often take refuge inside for hours. Picpus Cemetery had been a mass burial ground for victims of the reign of terror among the piles of the dead somewhere were adrian's mother one of her sisters and her grandmother lafayette chose to bury her in a corner knowing she would be close to her family he thought he was beaten he just wanted to go back to his Simple life of solitude. He was done with politics. Yes. But you see, politics were not done with the Marquis de Lafayette. God's Favorite is a bi-weekly history podcast where we look at some of the people who were God's favorites or... At least thought they were. Join us in two weeks as Lafayette returns to America to help wrap up the war at Yorktown. Sources for today's episode include Lafayette by Harlow Giles Unger, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution by Mike Duncan, History.com's biography on Lafayette, The Providence Journal's article on Lafayette at Brandywine, david clary's adopted son washington lafayette and the friendship that saved the revolution and remember you can always follow us on tiktok over at my account melissa fairlady or hang out with us over on god's favorites a history podcast on facebook the show is written and produced by me i'm melissa Special thanks to those on Patreon who make it possible for us to buy our resources and help support authors and, of course, costs for streaming and distribution. You can find our Patreon under God's Favorites a History Podcast, and the link is in my TikTok bio. Can't wait to pick back up with this story. See you later, friends.